This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 23. I've been reading devotionally through a book by Eugene Peterson entitled On Living Well. It's a collection of writings taken from various places like church emails and uh, sermon excerpts. And I came across an entry early this week where he wrote on the importance of Christians having a bright expectancy when they look to the future. He wrote... Christians should live on tiptoe, alert, joyful, wide-eyed, ready. And what are we looking to, he asked? Well, in a word, God. We know that God is always with his people. He doesn't leave. He doesn't wander off. He comes to us, his people. And then he describes a way of living That's only possible because God is with us. He writes, we ought to cultivate the skills that equip us to live in cheerful anticipation of what God will do tomorrow. Will we live anxiously, complaining and critical because we don't have all we want or because we don't know what is coming next? Or will we live in confident joy? Sure that God will, his next move will be a good one. The expectant command is for us to rejoice. The idea of living in confident joy and cheerful expectation in God has been a magnet for my thoughts throughout the week. I had multiple spiritual conversations with church members and friends. Each conversation had unique circumstances but seemed to share one common theme. Worry about the future. Well, that got me thinking about my own experience and how often I waste energy in the present as if worrying about tomorrow may make the future better somehow. I was reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. I realized how essential it is for each of us to cultivate a heart that experiences joy-filled expectation and deep trust in God. Are you living with confident joy that the God who redeemed your past also holds your future? As the Israelites gathered around Mount Sinai, God had given them everything that they needed at that point to flourish as his people. He had shown them his glory, spoken the ten words, given the book of the covenant. And as this section of instruction comes to an end, God lays out a list of blessings that await his people in the future as long as they walk in obedience to his commands. God also sounds a strong warning that if they choose not to obey, 
The ground beneath their feet will quake and their entire lives will crumble. In this mixture of warning and promises of our passage, the theme of blessing colors the whole passage with a sense of optimism about the future. The reason for this optimism isn't just Pollyanna-ish thinking, but is rooted, founded in God's covenant toward them. He would be their God. They would be his people. He wouldn't wander off and leave Israel. Rather, he would go before them and his presence would go with them till his mercy brought them home. This is the epilogue to the book of the covenant. Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. And here the Lord gives good reason for his people to be filled with cheerful anticipation of the future. They cannot see what life looks like beyond Mount Sinai. So these words are given to bolster them with joyful confidence that the God who redeemed them will also lead them with the gift of guiding presence. For Israel to enjoy all of these blessings that await them, they must cultivate a specific way of living that include two things. First, careful obedience. And second, wonderful promises. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand to your feet as we read from Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. And I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen.
The first way of living God calls his people to is one of careful obedience. It is no coincidence that the book of the covenant, this, these three chapters that we've spent some time in now, ends in the same place that it began, the subjects of worship and obedience. As the laws come to a conclusion, the emphasis shifts from specific commands to this summary of a bright future that God has in store for his people. Yet, notice these blessings will only be realized by careful obedience. Let's note a few areas of obedience God has called them to. First, notice the call to obey God's instructions. Verses 21 and 22. Two times in the opening verses of our passage, there is intentional repetition of the words careful and obey. Verse 21 states, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Verse 22 repeats, carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. We're introduced to an angel in verse 20 that God will send to be his messenger and give instruction on his behalf. I'm going to ask you just to hold your thoughts on angels. We'll look closely uh, at that in a little bit. For now, I want you to notice the people are to walk in obedience to what the angel says and to do all that I say, says the Lord. So surely the obedience to instruction here takes into account everything that God has already said and all the instructions and future laws and directions and everything that he will say in the future, it's to be honored and obeyed, to obey God's instruction. Next, the people are to practice careful obedience as they worship God alone. Verses 24 and 25 highlight this. The very truth that God had given through the first four commandments, remember we looked at those being a little book on Christian worship? We heard that same sentiment reiterated throughout the book of the covenant. And God says again and again and again to his people throughout the Old Testament, worship me alone. And again, again, and again, through the story of the Old Testament, his people will worship other gods. Why does God repeat himself? Because they will continue to forget. And he's reminding them continually that only God is to be worshipped. They're not to worship or bow down or serve any created thing. But worship, love, and serve only the uncreated God. What he's doing is separating them from the life and the worship and practices of all of their pagan neighbors. There's a specific application given here. When they reach the promised land, they're supposed to tear down all of the idols that had been built for Canaanite worship, uh, to destroy the idols that would sit on top of those altars and leave no trace of them. Now, when we were in the country of Jordan a few weeks ago, we walked a couple of miles toward a destination down an old travel route. And even just in the two miles we walked were five or six places along the way with ancient altars that they've excavated where pagan people worshiped pagan gods. And so I know this is hard for us to imagine because we don't, on your way to work on Monday morning, you're not passing a bunch of altars and feeling the need to pull over unless your idols are things like you know, Starbucks or uh, a large sporting venue. We do have some things. But um, 
We don't have this, but God knew the land they were going to. It was filled with idolatry. And he wants, when they reach the land, get rid of every trace of idolatry that's there. Why? Because they would continually feel the pull to worship other gods, forbidden gods. Let's begin in that garden with Adam and Eve, where they would try to bend the word of God to fit their desire, rather than bend their desire to fit the word of God. They're told to destroy all of the pillars of worship. Finally, God's people are to practice careful obedience in their covenantal loyalty. We see this in verses 32 and 33. Verse 32 reads, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. No covenant. May I remind you that the, these three chapters, 21 through 23, are called the book of the covenant. God's making a covenant with his people. This is the reason he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. This is the reason he saved them through the baptismal dry waters of the Red Sea. This is why he's brought them to Mount Sinai, that he might establish his covenant with them for Israel to know Yahweh like they never had before. They were his people, and he was to be their one and only God. He is a jealous God, and he will not share his people with anyone else. And since they were in covenant with Yahweh, they weren't to be looking around for other attractive gods or side-glancing at shimmering idols. No, their eyes were to be only for him. Their hearts were to be only set on him. This was an exclusive relationship that demanded covenant loyalty. In a way, this is Israel, the bride, if you will, that God has redeemed, standing at the altar and listening to these wedding vows. Now, on the day that Jamie and I were married, we looked into each other's eyes, we held each other's hands, and vowed to each other to forsake all others, keep ourselves only to each other. Forsake all others and keep ourselves only to each other. And at no time did we think, whoa, that's a lot to ask. Or... Hold on a minute. Really? No, that, that's why we were there. We were there to covenant into a relationship where she would be only for me and I would be only for her. It was an exclusive relationship. God is calling his people to an exclusive covenantal loyalty. God's people from of old were to obey God's instructions worship God alone, and practice covenant loyalty. Then the passage concludes with this grave warning. If they don't walk in obedience, what happens? Well, I think this is an ominous phrase. Look there at verse, what is it, 31, 32? You'll find it. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. A snare is a trap used to catch an animal. Now, a few years ago, we had evidence of a small intruder in our house. There were bags of crackers that were nibbled through, and there was uh, other evidence left behind. <laughs> Some of you will get that in just a second. Behind. Um, 
apparently there was a mouse sneaking while we were sleeping. And so we set some traps. We set some snares to catch this little guy. We put cheese on top of that trap, or little pieces of cracker on another one, to try to catch him. You'll be glad to know that the intruder is no more. You see, even though it took his life, he could not avoid the pull of the snare. Let me say to us, people of God today, beware the snares. God's warning his people of old of cultural snares, both without and also within. And we must also beware. There are spiritual snares all around us. Often they are unique to each of us. Yet I thought through these categories and realized how disobedience to each of these is a snare. Look through through these points. Obey God's instruction, worship God alone, covenant loyalty. Well, who has known the consequences of disobeying God's instructions in this room? Who has known the cost of worshiping something other than God? Who, who has committed spiritual adultery by breaking our devotion to the covenant that God has made for us, with us? The spring is set, and on top of that spring are all of the trappings of our culture. And if we get too close to those things, they will destroy us. 1 Timothy 6.9 talks about materialism as a snare, but this applies to all kinds of snares in the Christian life. Paul describes them as senseless and harmful desires. Why are they senseless and harmful? Because they're not desires toward God. They're desires away from him. And he says those kind of desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. There are people in this room that are still living in the ruin and destruction of their sin. If you find yourself trapped by the snare of sin this morning, there is only one way to be set free. It is by crying out to Jesus Christ to ask forgiveness for your sin. And he will deliver you. He will set you free from the snare of sin. Take you to himself. Cleanse you with his blood that was shed. Forgive you of all of your unrighteousness. That is really good news. If that's you this morning, if you're trapped in the snare of sin... Turn from your sin. Run to Christ. We see first this call to careful obedience. The way of living that Israel was called to also included a future full of wonderful promises. Just as the prologue to the book of the covenant. That's what we looked at a few weeks ago. Verses 20 through 26 of chapter 20. That spoke this comforting word of grace before all the law was given. And now here, at the end of the law, is another comforting word of grace for God's people. Deep comforts of grace for them. Let's explore this idea under two main headings. I want to look first at this messenger, and then second, at a list of promises. So first, the messenger. Perhaps you noticed straight away the presence of an angel 
is promised to the Israelites. In Hebrew, the word for angel and messenger are actually the same word. There's no difference between angel and messenger on Hebrew. And there are various thoughts as to the identity of this angel. Some conclude that it is simply a metaphor used for the guidance and the help of God. It wasn't an actual angel, just a metaphor used to describe how God guides and protects his people. Others believe that it was an actual person. Uh, St. Augustine believed this. He believed that it was actually Joshua, the leader who followed Moses. Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. And we see in verse 21, God says, my name is in him. So some have thought that this was a physical person. Others think that this is just a run-of-the-mill angel in the true sense of the word. You see what I mean? Just like an angel. I don't know there's no like simple angels, but you know, just an angel. However, I think if you look very closely, we'll find some unique qualities about this messenger. First, the angel is said to guide and protect the people on the way to the promised land. Psalm 34, 7 says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Uh, The angel also represents God. The people are told to obey his voice. But then look at verse 22. It equates the words of the messenger with the very words of God. It says, obey his voice and do all that I say. Now, God surely speaks through prophets God speaks to the prophets throughout the Old Testament, and then they speak God's words to God's people. But now you see a pattern that's starting to mount. Maybe this is more than just an angel. Notice there's then a warning that this angel will not forgive sin if they just choose to rebel against God. There's a strong warning language here. But if the messenger has the authority to not forgive people of sin... It also must mean he has the authority to do what? To forgive of sin. Well, who can forgive sin but God alone? Mark chapter 2, verse 7. And then finally, in 23, 21, notice, my name is in him. That statement assigns the divine name of God to this being. Who would God share his name with? Who would he share his glory with? None. No one. I want you to push pause and just remember in Exodus 3. This is not the first time we've seen this angel. In Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord, if you will remember, appeared to Moses at the burning bush. It was the burning bush, the angel was there, but He says, the Lord spoke to him. And then Exodus 14, the angel of God was going before the people in the pillar of cloud and fire. And remember when they're hemmed in against Egypt, against the Red Sea? Then the angel shifts from before to behind them to protect them. And then uh, chapter 13, verse 24 says that God, the Lord, looks down where the angel and the pillar are. Onto his people. And so we find this regular pairing in the book of Exodus between this angel and the Lord himself. 
So it seems to me to conclude that this messenger is what we would refer to as a Christophany. It's a visible manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. To say it differently, this is Jesus in the Old Testament. Let me just remind you, especially kids, remember Jesus wasn't born at his birth. He already existed. He always was. That's just when he added to himself once and for all flesh. So here I believe we have a Christophany. If you have questions about that, one of our other elders would love to meet you for coffee this week. (laughs) Now, let's conclude by rehearsing this remarkable list of wonderful promises that God gives to his people. First, verse 20, God will go before them. God promises the guidance of his messenger to lead his people to the promised land. These wandering nomads cannot reach where they are going on their own. They're going to need his help with every single step. What a comfort it is to know that God would lead them into the future. Martin Luther once said, I may not know where he leads me, but well do I know my guide. God will guide them. He will not just guide them, he will also be with them. We see this also in verse 20. It says he will bring them to the place that he's prepared for them. He's not just sending them. He's not wandering off from them. He's going to bring them all the way. What God begins, he finishes. Notice next, he will bless them. Verse 25, we find this comprehensive sense of blessing. We notice the blessing of health and longevity, the provision of food. It's not surprising bread and water are mentioned. These are the two things that have crippled them with fear already in the wilderness. Do you remember that? The people have panicked, not having enough. It's not the last time either. If you want to read ahead to the book of Numbers, they freak out about these same two things. How are we going to eat? We're so tired of manna. We need meat. Where are we going to find water? And God continues to provide for these fickle people. There's also the blessing of children. From the beginning, God promised to Adam, or commissioned Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. As we flip from Genesis to Exodus, we saw God's continuation of that promise to multiply his people. We see throughout the book of Genesis the trouble many women had to get pregnant and how God supernaturally had to attend things in order to fulfill his promise so they would be fruitful and multiply. Um, So this comprehensive sense of blessing in the promised land. And then four, God will fight for them. We see this in 23, also 27 to 29. I love this poetic phrase that summarizes this idea. God will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. This is highlighted in God sending a terror ahead of his people on their enemies, confusing and confounding them as they take over. Israel is not a highly trained army. They're a recently redeemed group of slaves, and they're going to have to go up against some of the highest trained armies of the day. How, they, how do they do that? God will fight for them. Uh, he, he's going to, matter of fact, like a swarm of hornets go before them. He's not a commander like the other kings that lead from the back. No, he's on the front line. 
God's people would need to learn to fight, but it would always be God fighting for them to give them the victory. And then finally, God will give them a land. Verse 30 and 31, the final verses describe the borders of the promised land. There's a little phrase. Verse 30, someone's eyes uh, are not what they were. 30, little by little. That's an encouraging phrase. It wouldn't happen all at once. God does that for the good of his people. You notice there's all, he also does it for the good of the land so that when things finally reach fulfillment, the vineyards and fields and everything that they would need are already ready for them. They weren't desolate. Little by little. How much does that phrase describe the Christian life? How much of the Christian life is little by little? Think about your own sanctification. Didn't happen all at once. Little by little. God would give them a land. We, the people he's saying this to would never see these promises realized, that promise realized. It wouldn't happen until King David was on the throne. And even then, for just a little while, and then their disobedience would lead to them losing, little by little, portions of the land. The vision of blessing here is one of the kingdom of God. God's people, in God's place, experiencing God's presence. God's people, in God's place, experiencing God's presence. Now that was for a group of people, our forebears, long ago. What does this mean for us today? I want you to think about this messenger for a moment. Because what Malachi does in chapter 3 is take this very language of the messenger who was sent to go ahead, and he uses that same language. Okay, Malachi 3, verse 1. Then the apostle Mark, when he goes to write his gospel, in Mark chapter 1, uses that very promise to say, God has sent a messenger before you. Who knows who that messenger is? His initials are John the Baptist. John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist is the messenger that fulfills, in a sense, this, this, this prophecy. But he couldn't do it perfectly. It's Jesus who would perfectly fulfill this. Not just a messenger, but the message. The word of God made flesh, who came to dwell among us. Like the angel, Jesus was sent from God. God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. Before he ascended, Jesus told us that he was going to prepare a place for us. Just like God would prepare the land for them, Jesus says he's right now preparing a place for us, that where he is, we may also be. Jesus Christ has the ability to forgive sin. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Christ has the authority to forgive sin. The name of God was in him. When Jesus was asked who he was, he replied with great intentionality, before Abraham was, I am. He assigns to himself the divine name. He takes it. And the Pharisees knew exactly what he was doing because when he took the name, they picked up stones to crucify him and eventually, or to kill him, and eventually he would lay his life down. 
It wasn't taken from him, but he would lay his life down willingly so that you and I might become sons and daughters of God. And even the grave itself did not hold him, but he rose victoriously on the third day and then poured out his spirit and gift upon gift, grace upon grace on us as people. I thought about this, this list of gifts, this list of blessings, promises given to his people, that God would go before them. Has there been a day of your life where God has not gone before you? Even leading you to this place right now? Not one. But not just that he would go before you, but he would go with you. Think about the promise that Christ gave to his disciples in the Great Commission. I am with you always to the end of the age. That God would bless us. And has he not blessed us in Christ? The material blessings of the promised land, uh, we may never know in this life. But the spiritual blessings of Christ will never fade. And God has fought for us. Christ has fought for us, proving victorious over Satan and sin and the grave. And he will give us a land. God will come and dwell with us, among us. We'll be looking at this every week for the next many weeks. The great gift of the presence of God where his people are in his place experiencing the joy of his presence, the gift of his guiding presence. So you, now, as we together look into the future, what are you crippled by? What fills your heart with anxiety? What's bigger than God cannot take care of? The one who has redeemed your past also holds your future. And we can live with cheerful anticipation, confident joy, if we are in Christ. One of my heroes is a man named Isaac Watts. He was a minister of a church in London for the majority of his life. Um, he's the greatest hymn writer, I think, uh, in history. And as a pastor and a hymn writer, he would often write a hymn to go along with his sermon. Matter of fact, he did it like every Sunday for a lot of years. I can't stand him. <laughs> My dear friend Matt Papa and I have been working on a hymn for the Trails Church um, based on a prayer that I've been praying for you since we planted. The prayer is that our God would go before us. You've, you've heard me say this and pray this. It's, it comes really from Exodus 33, which we'll get to sometime. But that idea is right it's just shot through this text. Um, your bulletin says we're going to sing Christ our hope in life and death after this, but we've made a change of plans. I hope this is okay. I'd like to um, introduce a new hymn this morning uh, that will, I hope, help us pray through the themes of this passage. I'm going to read it now as a prayer as we conclude, and then we'll stand together, and I ask you to sing. The hymn's called Our God Will Go Before Us. These are the lyrics. Our God will go before us and guide us with his presence. What confidence this promise is. We will never walk alone. Through unknown paths, through shadows, our hearts fear not tomorrow. For every step 
His faithfulness is the truth that lights our way. Though evil form against us, all heaven will defend us. The gates of hell shall not prevail, for the battle is the Lord's. Now send us with your presence and lead us on to heaven where songs of sorrow strain no more and our every breath is praise. Our God will go before us. The Lord of hosts is with us. His name, our song, we journey on till his mercy brings us home. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 